Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode of the Daily Delphi. Uh, I'm very happy to announce our next guest, Dr. Charlotte Goddard, is head of classics at Ampleforth College, forgive my stuttering, uh, attended Queen's College, Oxford to do classics and subsequently Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, where she completed a PhD in Renaissance Latin literature. How are you, Charlotte? I'm very well, thank you, Harry. Now, Renaissance Latin literature, probably uh, based on discussions we've had just before this recording, we should begin with discovery of Lucretius. Take it away. Lucretius, it was the subject of my PhD, um, Lucretius's fate in the Renaissance, because I found it fascinating that it was really quite a chance um, occurrence that led to Lucretius being, um, being rediscovered in the, in the 15th century. He was a first century BC Roman poet, a precursor of Virgil, um, a, a great um, originator of the use of the dactylic hexameter. He wasn't the first person to use it in Latin, but he certainly um, refined the skill of the meter, of, of, of working in that meter. And was a beautiful wordsmith in Latin um, and a very beautiful poet, but he hadn't survived with the same popularity as some of the other classical authors had throughout the Middle Ages. And there is a main reason for that is a chap called Lactantius. In around about 400, Lactantius was a, a Christian father, an early father of the church, who uh, believed that Lucretius was uh, evil and should not be read by any good Christian uh, reader. The reason being that Lucretius uh, not only drew on, but actually expounded the philosophy of Epicurus. And Epicurus, amongst other things, believed that the gods um, had no influence at all in the human world. So though Epicurus wasn't an atheist, he was not um, consistent with Christianity because he believed that there was no point in praying to the gods, no point fearing the gods, because the gods aren't interested in you. The gods just have this perfect life up in the clouds, living a life of ataraxia, which means freedom from care, freedom from worry. And the best thing humans can do is to get on with their own life, realize that we're mortal, nothing comes from nothing. I mean, everything goes back to nothing. Um, and um, then um, when we die, um, if we are lucky, we will have some sort of a um, ataraxia ourselves, freedom from care. So this was a philosophy which Lucretius put into his poetry. Um, and as that was not compatible with the philosophy of Christianity, he wasn't favoured by the early church. But one of his, uh, one uh, manuscript of his uh, De Rerum Natura, of the nature of things, uh, did exist and was found quite by chance by one 15th century uh, Renaissance book hunter called Poggio Bracciolini. And when he found it, he read it and said, this is unlike anything I have read before. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous Latin. Um, and he made a copy. And then he sent it to his friends and they began to make copies. And suddenly this began to get again a little bit of momentum. Um, and before too long, it was printed among the earliest uh, printed works and began to be copied by other um, poets, first of all, poets in Italy but writing in Italian, who emulated his style. But instead of writing Epicurean poems themselves, they wrote um, in particular 
people like Fontano, people like Marullo, wrote um, Christian poems, emulating Lucretius's style, copying his, his um, vim and his verve and his, his uh, didactic enthusiasm, but not copying exactly his philosophy. And I think, I think it's interesting that it was such an accident. I mean, you look at, it's interesting that also there are so many coincidences uh, and accidents occurring within a very short space of time. And I suppose it's because it became this, this trend of book hunting, of searching for these texts of antiquity. I mean, for example, uh, Apuleius, the Golden Ass, it's not a particularly prominent text synchronically when it's around in, at, at first. But then it gets this rediscovery, this rebirth of interest in it. And that's actually where a lot of Renaissance art took the Cupid and Psyche myth from. And suddenly that becomes a prominent myth because of the art and because it's uh, regularly portrayed in art. When in actual fact, back in antiquity, it wasn't that big a story in comparison with something like Ovid's Metamorphoses, which also, uh, it's fair to say, contributed to Renaissance art incredibly heavily. And... Where did this, when did this trend sort of come about? What, what started this uh, vogue of looking for ancient manuscripts? Well, ancient, the classics had always been uh, favoured by the educated man um, because um, the ancient authors who actually wrote down their, their, their poems, and in case of Homer, of course, that, that wasn't in Homer's, Homer's own lifetime, probably, but um, as the, the Iliad and the Odyssey began to get um, um, get read rather than remembered and, and repeated, uh, you, you then begin to have a body, a growing body of literature in Latin and in Greek, and the places where they were kept on the whole were the were the, the libraries. So uh, when the libraries of the of the first of all the monasteries and then of the early um, universities and schools and they would often be kept by monks so there were always people who were who were readers who were interested in reading and copying and looking at these things i think you, you'll begin to get um more cross fertilization of reading and more people traveling to different libraries when people have a reason to travel now, harry you mentioned the crusades earlier as one of the reasons why people were traveling across europe but in fact, um, any sort of um, reason for monastery hopping, uh, which was probably very uh, rife from the 12th, 13th century, um, you, you're going to get a lot of people looking at texts which they haven't previously seen before. It, it grew particularly in the 15th century, of course, and as soon as printing had, um, had been um, invented, then you're going to get people actively looking for manuscripts. Interesting. Now, in, in art, part of the reason that myth flourished, and it didn't flourish perhaps as much as we like to romanticise it did, uh, because it was still sort of left to the realms of decorative art where it couldn't be taken too seriously as to oppose Christianity too heavily. Um, but it, it survived because it was repurposed, myth was adopted, moralized sometimes, especially in the case of Ovid. And I was going to ask, I'm assuming the same happened with literature at the time. Mm. Well, o Ovid's um, 
metamorphoses uh, were uh, much moralized in the Middle Ages. Um, Ovid's Amores, to a certain extent, yes, but it's difficult to write a love poem which is overtly and outrageously <laughs> immoral, encouraging, for example, in some of Amores book one, openly encouraging adulterous liaisons. There's a limit to what you can do with moralizing that. So some of the 13th century poems which work on, on, on Ovid will copy only the style, um, but, but not, the, not the purpose. They will totally um, subvert that. And that's another thing that meant that the art could survive was it was, it was the artist as much trying to do, outdo uh, the artists of antiquity as it was just using the same subject matter. For example, uh, we now know that the ancients probably painted their marble statues, but by the time uh, statues like the Laocoon were dug up, they were uh, just discolored and white, which meant that all the Renaissance sculptures were then entirely white because they were attempting to outdo them in the same yes. medium. I'm sorry, go. Well, no, I mean, that, that, that I think is... is, is... It's very interesting because you look at 18th century landscapes which might have a classical temple in the background, that classical temple will never be painted, it will be white. Not only that, it will also very often be ruined. So people love the ruined effect, it's part of the, part of the appeal, part of the romance. Now if you travel to, to Rome and you buy a postcard, I don't think people buy postcards anymore, but you know what I mean, your standard picture of the Colosseum will never be um, either the Colosseum as it was um, in mid first century, nor will it be the Colosseum from any side where it seems to be complete. It'll be the, a picture of the Colosseum um, with the, the, what looks like the top right hand corner broken off. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that is the landmark that people, people know it by. Just as the leaning tower of Pisa is known by its lean rather than by the, by the actual, perpendicular that it was intended to be. People love the imperfections, people love the, 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 the rustic look, the, the broken look. Um, but the white that you mentioned, the, the, the fact that we don't replicate um, painted classical statues is I think very interesting. And it, I also find it quite funny that Although, as you say, the ruins have become part of the romanticization, you look at something like the Circus Maximus, which is mm. now essentially a field, but which mm. would have been this glorious uh, stadium capacity estimated to be something like 250,000, five times the size of the Colosseum, and yet that's gone so far the other way that, and this was for various uh, reasons, for people stealing bricks and stuff, but we don't have any of it now and it's just lost. And so if one's standing in the forum looking down, you wouldn't, unless you knew about it in advance and expect anything to have been there. You could miss it, couldn't you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting how um, different cities and different parts of the cities have treated their, their classical past in different ways. You mentioned the Circus Maximus, that's one example. And I think that's rather like, for example, the theatre at Verulamium, if you've been there, it's just outside St Albans. I'm in Hertfordshire, um, and it, it's a site you can walk around, you can, you can make out, if you know what you're looking at, where the seats would have been, but it's very much under a grass um, slope. 
Um, the, the seats have gone, the details have gone, but you need to fill them in with your, with your eye, with your, with your imagination. Um, others, in other examples, the, wor the world has, has grown up around it. It's a lovely example is the Piazza Navona in Rome. Another circus, not as big as the Circus Maximus, but it's a smaller um, arena for chariot racing. Um, and oblong shaped, you can see the two, um, you can see where the two turning points would have been at either end. Um, you can make it out, these days it's market, um, so you have to use a lot of imagination. There's been no attempt to leave it as a classical site for people to wander around and use their imagination on. It has simply um, been absorbed into the modern city and it's a bustling um, market square of its, of its own. And then the other extreme are those where the um, restorers have reconstructed the ancient buildings, very often paying no attempt to, to, to even use the original stone, but just to put, put things back together so that they, you don't need to use your imagination because um, everything is, is then in 3D as it might have looked in classical times, the only problem is you're not looking at the real stone, so it loses its wow factor. And you get bits of that at Delphi, where they have reconstructed one of the treasuries, the Athenian treasury. Um, and you, there is a, um, a place in Lindos on Rhodes where a classical citadel has been completely reconstructed. It's very false going there. It's a little bit like going around Legoland. So there are different ways in which we can access the classical sites, sometimes seeing a bit of broken past, sometimes seeing a bit of reconstructed or rebuilt past, and sometimes past that's just been absorbed into the model, modern world. And the modern city has grown up around it. And um, if you peel back the layers, um, this requires a lot of imagination, a certain amount of training, you can see uh, the original use of it. And, and on that, I remember an anecdote of, uh, I can't, can't remember the name, but I can remember the year quite oddly, uh, in 385 BC, when a man burned down a temple to Diana, and his defense of it was that uh, if all of, it's a good thing that we burned down the uh, the monuments of today, so the, pe the people of tomorrow have space to put theirs. And it brings my mind to Virgil's Aeneid once more. I believe it's book eight, and they're walking around the site which will be the future of uh, the whole city. And it's sort of this idea of uh, the, the transience or longevity of monuments in history. And this was basically taken in uh, the sort of Nazi regime, the idea of readopting, assimilating that Roman culture and architecture or Greco Roman. Oh into their uh, their history so that in 3000 years whatever when the third reich had ended it meant that people could come back and see it and say ah this is what's left of this incredible civilization and it's interesting that we've almost gone the other way now because now <laughs> everything's digital and virtual you've got the clouds so that it, you wonder if something came down a, a nuclear bomb or whatever and wiped out a lot of the uh, less uh, substantial or materialistic um, markers of civilization, shall we say, what they would actually think of us as a race? 
Well, yes, there's a lot of ideas, I and mean, I think the um, the notion of the the, the permanence um, that it's it's very interesting because I think it's very much in human nature to want to leave a mark that's permanent. But then we have changes of fashion, changes of belief that say that's no longer relevant to us. Look at, for example, the response to the Colston statue in Bristol this summer and other statues. Similarly, people are being, being beginning to challenge whether something which was heralded very much in one era um, is, is, is similarly um, wanted in another. Um, I know the passage from Bouquet of Virgil that you have in mind, and I think it's a beautiful one because it's almost a reverse of this um, longevity, whereas we might look at um, a, a, a site which is well, perhaps something a little bit like Circus Maximus and it's covered in grass and we think, ah, well, that used to be um, a grand uh, stone-clad um, build, building for something like 20,000, I think, uh, probably perhaps more, um, could, could, could sit around it. Um, Whereas what Virgil's doing is saying, well, look at this, this, this sort of grassy knoll. That's before the time. In the future, it was to become something rather grander. That really puts the empire, of course, on, a, on, a, on quite a pedestal. Because the, the empire was seen to be the fulfillment. It wasn't in an ear day, even, even in the great age of heroes. And um, Virgil's sort of working with a mindset which he inherits from Hesiod, that the age of heroes was a better age than the current age he's working in. At one point, I think he says in this, I think maybe in book 12, um, men to, today, you'd, you'd need 12 men to, to lift this stone. But in those time, times, it would have been, even then, even then you'd need four. You know, you couldn't do it with one. So men of, of a heroic age were better. Mm. But um, so he, he's saying something very complimentary about Augustus and his own age by saying, look, um, this age was in many ways better. It was a refinement of, 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 of what had come before it, even from the age of um, Aeneas, when men were greater and, and the world was, was a grander place. Now, with the cloud... We, we have our, our permanence to a point, but we are no longer, I think, so attached to the physical permanence of things, perhaps. No, I think that's, I think that's entirely fair. I think that's entirely fair. Um, in, in broader terms, I think the Colson statue, which you mentioned, has brought up this whole debate of history and the idea of, and this has happened to a degree in cinema as well, with uh, sort of the censorship of yeah. uh, films, pictures, series, where they have they depict scenes which, by today's standards, are unacceptable, but are as much a product of the time that they're mm -hmm. set in. And it's brought this whole debate up of what, where should that history go? What, what, it, what is what to be done with that history? Because from my personal perspective I'm probably one of those and I don't mean to get too political on this but I'm probably one of those people that say that although that statue shouldn't be glorified it should still be put in the museum as now it's uh it's longevity has is has been manipulated for to get different means now it's no longer glorifying that man and his 
exploits which put the statue up in the first place so much as it's glorifying the fact that it was it was toppled and now it signifies a mark on history and i was just wondering your thoughts on that well i mean it's interesting you say well we we can use museums and that was actually my first thought was when this this statue came down well no need to throw it in the river because it can be in a museum and then it becomes a talking point a thinking point a learning point and we can use it to think about race and slavery and um and, and, and indeed the um, positive contribution that Colston made to, to, to Bristol as well, which has got sometimes a little bit forgotten in the debate. The uh, Roman and Greek worlds didn't on the whole have that facility in the sense they didn't have a museum um, per se, although there, there are places where uh, statues and objects of, of, of art were, were there to be, to be admired it wasn't so, I think the, the notion of the educational museum uh, wasn't known so much in their world. So they were much happier to um, have a statue for overtly political purposes um, and then to get rid of it when those purposes didn't, um, were no longer relevant. Now, one example of, um, this is more from the Greek world than Roman world, um, just from the Greek world, the statue with particular political purposes is don't know if you've come across the statues, it's a pair of statues of Harmodius and Aristogaton, which were put up in the um, Athenian um, Agora at the beginning of the fifth century BC. And these uh, were, men were uh, accredited with being the slayers uh, of the tyrants of the Pisistratid family who had run Athens. They had a monopoly of running Athens in the century before. And when uh, Athens under Cleisthenes, first of all, set up democracy in 508, they were so proud of having got rid of their tyrants. And this uh, one uh, family who had had a monopoly on ruling Athens, that they put up these massive statues, and they're colossal, um, looming over everybody in the, the Agora to say to people, look, these are the men who've got rid of tyranny for you. Um, look at them and be glad that you've got your democracy. Um, so you can't get much more political than that, really. Uh, so we now have those statues in a museum, uh, and they can be seen um, in the museum at Delphi, where people can look and um, read the little caption and understand a little bit about them and put them in their context and look on them with, with, with more of an open mind. So although I think we currently live in a world that's very quick to judge and perhaps very quick to be oversensitive on many issues, we are at least um, currently in a world which is prepared to be um, questioning about its past and questioning also about its icons. Um, at our best, at least, we're questioning about our icons. And there's plenty in celebrity culture that isn't. Now you were talking about films before. I don't know if you wanted to, to uh, did you have any particular films in mind? Oh, gosh, I, I mean, their names escape me right now, but films that have been <laughs> deliberately censored because they mm. may depict slavery or mm. something like that, as part of the norm and not in yeah. retrospect yeah. reflecting on yeah. it. And I think, I think mm. it was Idris Elba who spoke out on that and said that it's great that these issues are becoming and are being addressed that they shouldn't be erased. We can't pretend they didn't happen because yeah. that's almost a step backwards and it's about learning from them as much as it is. Well, 
learning about learning about and from the classical world is, is I think, a huge help here yeah. because um, as classicists, we, we work with slavery every day. Um, there were slaves of both of the private, personal, domestic kind and also on the, the political um, slaves. There were whole peoples who were um, captured in slavery and were essentially living as, as slaves to the, the Roman Empire. Um, in, in both the Roman and the Greek societies. And I think having that understanding of slaves' place in society doesn't condone it. Nothing condones the, the, the treatment of human beings as objects and the uh, uh, very often um, uh, absolutely appalling uh, absence of, of, of human rights and so on. Nothing condones that. Nothing. But having it as part of the culture allows us to have that dialogue, allows us to understand how some strata of society were not, well, um, contributed massively to society, but were not recognised in the lasting monuments which have come down to us largely through literature. You will see actually a fair bit of slaves in uh, art before in, in, in Greek vase painting. Greek, Greek vase, vase painting is a lovely leveller because it shows us a bit about um, the lives of slaves, women and children. That's three groups who are fairly silent in literature. You'd have to discount, of course, Greek theatre, Greek tragedy, which gives women a prominent uh, and often overly prominent voice. So the women of Greek tragedy um, are, are often your... your uh, your murderesses, your your electors, your Medeas, your Clytemnestra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, hardly a, a typical woman of woman, of course. But otherwise, uh, the voice of woman is, is is really fairly silent in the more serious works of literature. Um, if we exclude um, if we exclude the, the the Greek tragedies, but bath painting shows you women at their looms, playing with their children, collecting water doing very normal things, just getting a bit of jewellery out of a box. Um, and th that's where the, the, the vase painting is, is useful. We, we see slaves as well, okay, largely domestic slaves, but we see slaves doing ordinary work. And do you think that that was portrayed in the medium of vase painting because it was uh, arguably less grandiose than something like an altar or a statue of a politician less public less public so right yeah your, your altar is going to be for a, for a wide audience certainly and it's and it's 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 written it's made just as, as something similar made today in the knowledge that it's going to be seen by maybe thousands of people walking past these things were, 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 were private, but that doesn't mean to say that they, they were less grandiose. You're, you're, um, in Rome, Usanian ware pottery, very, very expensive. In, in Greece, um, certain objects, such as the Lutrophoros, which is a, um, an enormous vase that women um, would use to carry the water for their bridal bath before they got married. So you're going to have one of those in your life, yeah. probably. You know, married twice, you might get two. Um, and uh, it's, it's enormous, very, very ornate, thin handled, breaks terribly easily, but crazily, more of these survive intact than your dinnerware. 
which would suggest that people looked after it very, very carefully. And I suppose you would if you only can have one, one of these in your life. And this would be for show. You would put it, if you, you had a grand house, you would put, put this in the part of the house where people could walk past um, regularly. Now, I don't know enough about Greek housing to know where in a Greek house that might be. Possibly in the Andro, in the place where you'd invite your guests to come in for a symposium. That's a man's room. But in the um, in a Roman house, some of the grander houses, go to Pompeii, for example, the number of um, uh, villas there, which were for very, very wealthy people. And they had these ally, these wings, whose sole purpose was to show off your precious objects to your visitors. The atrium also in a Roman house, any visitor would go through, would have to go through the atrium before they're received by their host in the middle of the house. Um, so those atria can also be very grand and that's where you might have your, your private art that's, that's semi-public. It's, it, it's showing off stuff really. It's um, your, your, best, your best china, your best um, paintings, statues. Not many people have statues in, the, in their houses today but um, Romans would. So I think, yeah, we can draw a distinction between public and private art, but if you were very wealthy, your private art was meant to be seen. Yeah. And, and that's actually to end where we started, what happened a lot in the Renaissance is, is uh, paintings of myths of antiquity being used to create a backdrop to actual relics from antiquity, coins and gems mm. and small bits of bobs from ancient times. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Carla. It's been an absolute pleasure, if not rather spontaneous, um, and it's been an exercise for myself. Well, my, my pleasure too, um, and thank you very much for inviting me. No, pleasure's on that. Thank you very much. Thank you.